Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. The last time we went into detail about the crucifixion and really for the purpose of giving us a better appreciation of what our Lord and Savior did for us. Unlike all the other criminals who were guilty of what they did, Jesus was crucified for our sins, not for his own. We also saw the effect that Jesus had on the last few people that came in contact with him prior to his crucifixion. Today we're going to be in Luke, but we're going to continue to take the Gospels concurrently to get a better understanding of the remainder of Jesus' earthly ministry. Okay, starting in verse Luke 23, verse 50. And behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their counsel and deeds. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So we come to this historic figure, Joseph of Arimathea. Most of us know, uh, if we don't know much about him, we know at least that he gave the tomb to Jesus to be buried in. But different Gospels, and I love to take them, again, synoptically, concurrently, I like to put them all together so you can see it chronologically in order from each person's standpoint of what was happening at the time. Matthew 27 says that Joseph was a rich man. Mark 15 adds that he was a prominent council member, a member of the Sanhedrin. Mark also records that he courageously asked for the body. Oh, he asked Pilate for the body. Now, the, what in, what's interesting there is, uh, I think Mark's the only gospel where he said he asked in a courageous manner. And what's interesting is uh, most Bible scholars attribute Mark's gospel heavily for a, a Petrin influence. Peter influenced Mark in writing his gospel. And Peter failed. He denied the Lord. But Joseph picked up the ball and he went to Pilate and said, hey, I want, I want the body. And we'll explain why that was significant. So Peter adds that it was courageously done. So you just see the flavor of each unique person, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? But this fulfilled Isaiah 53, 9, which says that he, the Messiah, would be buried with the rich. Now, if Joseph didn't request the body, what, this is what would have happened according to history. The, you know, people crucified all the time. The Romans would take the body down, you know, they would let him rot, de decompose for a while, take the bodies down and then dump them in a garbage dump outside the city. That's what would have happened to the body of the crucifixion victims. But here, uh, Joseph takes the body. And John 19 also adds that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus. Now, John 19 also reintroduces us to Nicodemus, the Pharisee. For a Pharisee, his name was appropriate. Nicodemus meant conqueror of the people. But he turned into a pretty good guy. Uh, do you remember him from John chapter 3? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and talks about spiritual things, and there's that whole uh, dialogue about being born again. But this teacher of Israel, again, came to be discipled secretly by Jesus. According to John 19, Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes for the burial, 
which would have been very expensive. Both Joseph and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen for a customary burial. The plan was to finish the burial after the Sabbath passed. So this is how it worked. You had Friday was the crucifixion. By 3 o'clock, Jesus had expired. He had, he had died. And what happened was the body was asked for. The body was requested. And between the 3 o'clock and sundown, which started the Sabbath, they were starting this whole burial process, right? Then you have the Sabbath, which goes from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. Uh, and you have the first day of the week, because we're going to get to that, starting uh, on Sunday, where they would plan to finish the job. That was the, the plan, to start the burial process, put him in the tomb, and then uh, when the Sabbath is done, because you have to rest on the Sabbath, the first day of the week, to go, him, his followers, and to come finish preparing the body. So what do we have here? We have Joseph and we have Nicodemus, two men of wealth, and status, well known to the community and certainly the political climate as well. For what may have been months or possibly years, these two men come to Jesus secretly, right? Because they have everything to lose if they're found out. Too much position, too much status. But now they face a crossroads in their life. The question is, do they continue to lead a secret double life or do they choose to openly proclaim their faith? And they chose the latter. In Mark's gospel, it says, Joseph, coming and taking courage, asked Pilate for the body. At this point, when he goes and asks Pilate for the body, the secret is out. The cat's out of the bag, so to speak, right? So what happens is these guys finally put their earthly treasures on the line. Reputation, wealth, in pursuit of eternal riches. What does Jesus say? He says, don't store up yourselves uh, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. He said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. Could the same thing be said of us? There comes a point in time where you can't be a secret disciple of Jesus anymore. Well, it's easy to say the J word, Jesus, in church. But are you sheepish when it comes to shining the light of Christ, being salt of the earth in front of the world? Are you afraid to speak in conversation in the cafeteria, whether it's at school or it's at work? Almost like you, you, know, you don't want to say Jesus, and if you say it, all of a sudden your tone drops so that people can't overhear you. What about family functions? You just feel like, well, you know, they're not going to receive it, so I'm not going to even discuss it what about any social gathering well there's two extremes in christianity there's again extremes and hopefully most people uh fall within the middle but there's your closet christians and your obnoxious christians now as a new believer i was one of the obnoxious christians it's a wonder that people didn't listen to me <laughs> but what i learned was and again i'm not advocating the latter because what we learn to do is we follow jesus's gentle style he didn't beat people over the head with the kingdom of heaven. He loved people. He interacted with them, and he shared it with them uh, in a non-obnoxious way. But some are embarrassed. Some are ashamed. Some feel that they have too much to lose to be associated with the divine Jesus, which is the true Jesus. Sure, people can say, well, yeah, he was a good man. 
he was a nice guy, he was a prophet, but that's where they'll stop short for fear of ostracization by other people. So for some, I wonder when it's going to be the time to go from the secret disciple to an open disciple. Tradition says this about Nicodemus particularly. Nicodemus was baptized by Peter and John. He was forcibly removed from the Sanhedrin. He was persecuted for his faith, and he was forced to leave Jerusalem. What will be your fate based on your testimony for Jesus Christ? What will history say about you when it comes to standing up for what's right, when it comes to your testimony for Jesus? We're also reminded of the following of the women. In a lot of ways, the women displayed more bravery in the scripture than the men did, right? Uh, not because he was, you know, people have different weird ideas, and unfortunately I have to address some of them, but not because Jesus was a hunk. That wasn't why they followed him. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 53, too, it says that Jesus was not, he had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. No, nothing particularly striking about Jesus that would p- cause people to take a double, a double take, a double look. But you know what? What's interesting is neither was Paul. Even Paul, when he speaks about himself and he compares, he speaks about the comparison made between him and Apollos, which was this charismatic evangelistic guy. Uh, They looked at Paul and said, well, he's not impressive in person. And it's a shame that people uh, look at that. But the Son of God freed women from being second-class citizens to having worth. Their value came from the Creator himself. And it's no different today because the message is still appropriate to underdogs of society today. When I was a kid, I used to love watching Underdog. You know, he was a little, little, little dog and he was a hero. But it, actually, I looked it up in the dictionary. That's a legitimate word, underdogs. The, the person who's always being oppressed, the person who's kicked to the curb, you know, the, the bottom of society based on society's standards. Jesus came for those people. And that's why, it's funny, when I became a Christian, I remember somebody almost psychoanalyzing me, telling me, well, you came from a a traditional church background. What made you become a Christian? Like right away they think that something had to be wrong with you for you to become a Christian. Was it, did you get involved with drugs? Did you get arrested? Did you go to jail? No, it was my time. The Lord called me. But... Jesus, it, it's, it's actually a good reputation. It's so common for people to come to Christ, those people who are the underdogs of society. Jesus always tried to scoop them up first. So that's a, a, good, um, a good picture of him. But the rabbis of the day didn't associate with women in a sense. They only taught men. But Jesus' teachings and Jesus' actions were loud and clear. They said to these women, in God's eyes, you have value, you have worth, even though society says you don't. The women were always faithful to Jesus unto his death. And you had, uh, to varying degrees, some of these women were there all the time mentioned in Scripture, and some you hear them mentioned here and there, but basically comprised of uh, Mary Magdalene, who seven demons were cast out of her. She's very grateful. You had... uh, Mary, his mother, who is at the cross, and we see in Acts that she ends up uh, with the disciples again. We see his mother's sister was named Mary, too, and this is from different gospel accounts. So he had an aunt, Mary, right? Joanna, Salome, and Mary, the mother of James. Well, there's a lot of Marys in the scripture because Mary comes from the Miriam at the time. Uh, young Jewish girls, it was a popular name to call the Miriam after Moses' sister. 
kind of reminds me of growing up in Staten Island where I was from. Every girl's name was Maria. But it was a common name. But these women ministered to him throughout his ministry. They ministered to him as they followed him to the crucifixion site. And they ministered to him during the crucifixion. And they also ministered to him post-crucifixion. After he died and the body was taken down, they still ministered to him. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, but they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves. And he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. In verse 1, the women were acting in concert with Joseph and Nicodemus, anointing the body to prepare it for final burial. As a matter of fact, their biggest concern, the women, as they got closer, according to Mark 16, uh, was who is going to roll the stone away from us? This was their concern as they were heading to the, uh, you know, the, the tomb. And in verse 4 and 5, we see their encounter with the angels. Uh, in Luke's gospel and also in the second of Luke's work in the book of Acts, we see the same type of thing, these men in shining garments. This is from the women's perspective, but these are angels. And in verse 7 through 9, let me read that again. The angels say, actually starting with 6, He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee. Remember, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. So there's a recollection going on. It kind of reminds me of... uh, uh, you know, they, they say this thing, they, they bring the scripture to them, and it clicks. It clicks to them. How many people have seen, or be honest with you, even if you don't have kids, how many of you here have seen the children's movie Finding Nemo? All right, a lot of you. Come on, be honest, even if you don't have kids. My son, is, uh, he, he's so repetitive. I must have seen that movie 20 times. I know all the lines in it, and he makes me watch it with him. So I can use the uh, analogy of that movie. One of the the fish, the little blue fish, Dory, has a bad memory. She can't remember anything. And she's with Nemo's dad, and the whole movie, they're trying to find Nemo, right? So they think, uh, they ended up in a situation in the dentist's office, and they think that Nemo dies. They think he, you know. And so what they do is Dory and Nemo's dad, they're kind of going away dejected, and Nemo's dad just wanders off to go home, and he's all depressed. And now Dory forgets everything. And all of a sudden, Nemo, who's close by, meets up with Dory, and he starts talking to her, and she, you know, he, he, she hears the name and all, but she's not remembering. 
And for some reason, she looks down and she sees Sydney, Australia, the words on the, on the uh, sewage system. And then all of a sudden, it clicks. It comes back. P. Sherman, 42 Wallaby Way, Sydney, Australia, right? <laughs> the sharks, the turtles, you know, the whole journey, see? But it, it just clicks to her. And it all comes back and she's ecstatic. Well, that's sort of what's happening here. Sort of. But this is human nature, right? When things get tough in life or you fall in hard times, you have a tendency to do one of two things, okay? The first one is you forget the promises of God. Or the second thing is you believe the promises of God still, but you think that they're for everyone else except for you, right? It's human nature. And that's why it's good to be in the Word, because the Word brings us back to reality, and it keeps us grounded. And it's good to associate with people who are in the Word. So when you have trouble, and you have trouble in your life, you can be in fellowship with people who are around the Word, and who can bring you back to reality, right? All the historical characters we're going to meet today had to be reminded of God's Word to snap out of it. They were all living defeated lives until... They were brought back with the word of God. And it's very common for some Christians to live powerless and defeated lives because they're not immersed in the word of God. They're going through the motions day after day, going through the Christian thing, you know, but living powerless, fruitless lives, a surface Christianity. I got to tell you, as a new believer, uh, I never really liked the Psalms. I really couldn't get into them. I know to some women that's blasphemy, but, but bear with me. I like them now. <laughs> but I read the Psalms and I read, you know, we look at David. He was a warrior. He was a mighty king. Yes, he sinned, but he, he repented and he was back in the game again. And God anointed him. And, you know, he had so many attempts on his life, but he still was managed to get out of that and live a productive life. But what about all the Psalms that speak about how he says, my couch is drenched in my tears, you know, my soul needs to be revived. But it's really cool because you look at these people in the scripture, okay, and they're no different from us. They had the same, and you say, well, you know, David was God's man, and, and God had his hand over David, but David went through a lot of tough times. So the Psalms are really good, but the scripture helps us not only to bring us back to reality, but to show us that when we're in trouble and we're suffering, we're not the only ones going through it. Now, the angels recounted the events foretold in scripture and reminded them of Jesus' words and it gives them a new spring in their step, right? Because they're kind of downcast in the beginning. And one account has, uh, uh, I believe it was Mary, say to the angel, or she says to Jesus, you know, what have they done? She thought he was the gardener at first. You know, where's my Lord? And they were all upset. But now all of a sudden they're brought back, right? Similar to Nicodemus and Joseph, the women take a chance on giving their testimony to the rest of the disciples. And why do I say they're taking a chance? Because in that society, even though Christian, Christianity liberated women okay, and freed them from that, that low status, it still took a while to catch on. In the society, they, the women still had a lower status. And it's still that way in much of the world. It's, it's unique in, in the West uh, with women being able to vote and having a lot of freedoms they have. A lot of countries still, the majority of the planet, women are second-class citizens. But a woman's testimony in those days wouldn't have weighed as much as a Jewish, uh, under Jewish law or Roman jurisprudence. It says the disciples heard the women and they, it seemed to them like idle tales. 
Well, obviously, and I try to put myself in their position, obviously morale was low. Think about this. Peter fled. He draws the sword. Jesus tells him to put the sword away, and he's like, I'm out of here. He panics and he runs, right? Jesus is executed. Their leader is executed. Peter seems to be, next to Jesus, you know, the spokesperson in a sense. So Peter flees. Jesus is executed. Judas, who's the treasurer, he kills himself, okay? And the rest of them are hiding. There's obviously a morale problem here, right? But from a temporal point of view, you probably wonder with these guys, they probably are hiding and wondering, could we ever show our face again in public? It, it, you know, it was just that, that psyche on them, that, that feeling that they had. And it certainly was different from a few days ago how different it was when they were saying to, you know, to each other, hey, I'm, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They were all looking, jockeying for positions, and now they're hiding behind closed doors for days. And the events in verse 12, it says, with, with Peter arising and going to the tomb, verse 12 is actually expanded in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. You see the interaction between uh, Peter and John at the tomb. Uh, Matthew 28 uh, also interjects, which we, we, we didn't, doesn't cover here in Luke, but the accounts of the guard. Uh, the guards are guarding the rock, and they have the, the seal on it. And uh, what happens is, the angel comes and rolls that huge stone over to open up the tomb, and the guards fall down as dead men. Now the guards, when they, when they end up reviving, they go to the religious leaders and they uh, say, hey, we have a problem here. So what happens is, the, and they go there for two purposes. One, now they have to explain to the Roman government what happened. Why did the guards leave? Why is the tomb empty and why is the stone rolled away? And the second thing they have to do is keep themselves from losing their lives because of dereliction of duty. So that actually is covered in Matthew 28. So you start to see all the puzzle pieces fitting together. Now, now up to verse 13 in Luke again. It says this, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they were conversing and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you are having with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he, it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes. And certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ who have suffered these things to enter and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. 
Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Emmaus was about seven miles west of Jerusalem. Now, there's Cleopas, who's mentioned here, and there's a Clopas, who's also mentioned in John 19.25, that is the, uh, the husband of Mary, uh, who was Jesus' aunt, okay? Which could be Clopas, Cleopas, I'd have to go into the original language, I should have, but I didn't. Uh, so I don't know if that's the same guy, and also is a possibility some speculate that the other person, because he's mentioned the third person, was actually Luke speaking about himself. But, you know, that's not definite, but it's an interesting conjecture. Not unlike everyone else in this account, these two disciples, after what happens, they leave town. They're out of there. They go from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're not going ahead to Galilee as Jesus instructed them prior. So that they're not anywhere near uh, going to Galilee and, and following the instructions that Jesus had for him, for them. Verse 25 and 26, he says to them, O foolish ones, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. The believer who's not grounded in the word has no more wisdom than worldly people. Think about that. The believer who's not grounded in the word has no more wisdom than the unsaved. All of my best counsel given to people has always had its foundation in the scripture. All of the best counsel that's ever been given to me has always had its foundation in the scripture. He also says, ought not Christ to have suffered? It's sad how many believers do not take the scriptures in its entirety. That's how false doctrine and cults start, okay? By taking bits and pieces of the scripture and leaving the rest out. He said, we were hoping that it was him that was going to redeem Israel. Okay, but if you go back into the scripture, you go back into Isaiah 53 that we read last uh, Sunday, go back into Psalm 22, the sufferings, the Psalm of the Cross, the suffering servant Messiah, these things had to have been. So they're being reminded of this. I think of the doctrine that says God wants you to be always healthy and always wealthy. Well, that certainly didn't apply to Jesus, didn't apply to Paul, didn't apply to Peter or John, so I don't know who they're talking about. Sufferings and trials were and are non-negotiable in the Christian life. It's just part of the life that we lead. If that's the case and you have to be wealthy and you have to be healthy, then you better do a pastor church search because I'm not wealthy and lately I haven't been feeling so good. But verse 32, he says, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he speaks with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us. Why? Because they were revived by the word of God. Romans 10:17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The important question is, do your, do your hearts burn or do you have heart burn? It sounds subtle, but there's a world of difference. Seriously, if your hearts are burning, your hearts are on fire for the word of God. You're looking forward to hearing God's word. And somebody to expound upon it, like today. Uh, if I go to a Bible study or I go to listen to a sermon or I pop a CD and to hear it on, on, on the, uh, in the car, 
I want to hear what that person says. I don't do it so I think I've done my duty before God. When somebody opens up a passage of Scripture that maybe I'm weak on, and they expound upon it, I get excited. I'm like, wow, that is cool. Or somebody from the body asks me a question that I really don't know, and I've got to look it up. And then I'll say to that person, and, and they say, well, I'm sorry to bug you. I'm like, no, 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 no. I was weak in this area, and now I'll never forget it. So your heart should burn, okay, when the Word of God is, is spoken to you. But heartburn comes from taking the junk in of this world. Heartburn comes from pornography, that's junk. Too much TV, that's junk. After so many, a certain amount of watching TV, I tell my son, okay, don't watch TV. Uh, he says to me, uh, actually, sometimes I say, what do you want to do? He goes, well, I watched enough TV today, and I don't want to watch anymore because you said it makes me crazy. Heartburn comes from worldly friends who are always, you know, you're, you're trying to follow the Lord and your worldly friends keep pulling you away from the things of God. Heart, spiritual heartburn comes from being addicted to earthly treasures. You, you get pulled in, in too many directions and you can't be double-minded. In verse 33, I'll read that. It says, So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. These guys do an about-face. They go from Jerusalem to Emmaus, right? Seven miles. Now they do an about-face, and they go and return to Jerusalem to tell the eleven what they've experienced. If you're doing something wrong or you're not going in the right direction, the Word of God will turn you around if you're open to it. The Word of God will turn you around and put you on the right road and help you to walk properly. I just want to go through um, a few theories uh, that people have to explain the, the resurrection before we close. Because it's good to and have a little, you know, 1 Peter 3.15, to know why you believe what you believe. And if somebody asks you why you believe what you believe, to give a good account, a good testimony. So a few theories about the resurrection and what people, the naysayers say, and then we'll just talk about how they don't make sense. The first one is the disciples stole the body. And I do this at the end because you get to see what actually happened and you, and you try to say, well, could that have actually happened? The disciples stole the body. Well, what we see here is a picture of cowering disciples for days behind closed doors. Some leave Jerusalem altogether and they're in disbelief when the women report on the empty tomb. So this is what you're dealing with. Now, do you think these guys are candidates for attacking the soldiers and ro rolling a half-ton uh, stone out of the way? to let Jesus out of there? I, I don't think so. The second theory is the swoon theory. The swoon theory says that Jesus only swooned when he was taken down from the cross, and when they laid him in the tomb, he revived. All right? So he didn't actually die. Well, last Sunday we went into the detail of the fatal ramifications crucifixion had on the human body. And in case you weren't there, I'm, I'll talk to you a little bit about some of the things that he experienced through the whole procedure, starting with the night before. And this is what he had to deal with uh, at the crucifixion and prior. Dehydration, sleeplessness, hunger, emotional stress, hematohydrosis, hypovolemia, exhaustion, blunt trauma, major lacerations, probably infection, edema, probably congestive heart failure, shock, asphyxia, and a fatal heart and lung wound, and... No Robert Wood Johnson trauma unit anywhere nearby, okay? Did I miss anything? On top of that, oh yeah, I forgot. He pushed a half-ton stone out of the way after that, and he beat up the guards. So swoon theory doesn't hold a whole lot of weight. The third one is the hallucination theory. This is a good one. 
It says that the witnesses to the resurrection actually hallucinated or through the power of the mind, they wanted to believe so bad that he rose from the dead that they all said the same thing. Here's a problem with that. Three Sundays ago, and this is why I like to be thorough, in the Resurrection Sunday service, we covered 1 Corinthians 15. Now, just about all, if, just about all the, old, the New Testament writers saw the risen Christ uh, as well as 500 witnesses at one time, Paul tells us. Now, how are they all hallucinating? You've got different people, different walks of life, different areas, people going back to their business. All of a sudden, they see the risen Christ, and they all do an about-face in their behavior. So how are they all hallucinating at the same time? I mean, unless somebody spiked their new wine, I, I don't think that that holds weight either. But in addition to that, the number of followers dropped to nothing after the crucifixion and then skyrocketed afterwards to where many were giving their lives and their children's lives instead of or dying instead of uh, denying the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what we saw today was basically Jesus' resurrection, but there was even more to that, more, than, more to the story than that going on. We got to see the human response to tragedy and whether or not they would trust God's word to be fulfilled. Each person reacted differently to the death of Christ, but none of them was completely sold on the resurrection as fact right away. Remember, they were planning to bury him. After the Sabbath was over, they were going to go back, continue anointing him, binding him up in this linen, putting the stuff on him. They were going to bury him. You don't do that to somebody you think is going to, you know, you're making it more difficult, right? He's all bound. So um, if they really believed completely, and I, I don't deny their love and devotion for him at all, but if they really were completely sold on the resurrection, they would have been waiting by the tomb early Sunday morning doing a countdown. I mean, it would have been like the New Year's Eve and the ball dropping. They all would have huddled together and said, any minute now, he's going to come out because he said he would. But that wasn't their behavior. So, even the ones totally devoted to Jesus were preparing him for burial. The angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? It was a subtle, subtle rebuke to them. But one thing is true of all their situations it was the word of God that revived them all and brought them back to their senses. And for us, I think that's a lesson that we could all take. Any of us here, we could all take that lesson about being revived by the word of God. Let's pray. It's been 